0: How can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership
1: of commons—the air, soils, water, biological diversity, the back cultural
0: diversity—is as Severe critical as cultural, biological diversity. In this
1: epic struggle oh, to preserve a habitable planet, that land. is the
0: only thing which is sustainable. The
1: place that you love is now under siege. Unregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet.
0: These are system problems. Our humanity is we at We shouldn't stake. ask whether we can survive. These are existential or questions not. as much as they are systemic questions. Action informed by knowledge of get down place. To work.
1: You're listening to the Schumacher Lectures, a channel hosted by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. The Schumacher Lectures feature speakers who challenge entrenched ways of thinking while exploring how to build a new economy that serves both people and the planet any public program to preserve land or produce food is hopeless if it does not tend to right the balance between numbers of people and acres of land, and to encourage long-term stable connections between families and small farms.
0: Stuart Wallace delivered his speech, Voices of a New Economics, in November 2010.
1: Let's have a look at it. I mean, it really is wonderful to be here because what I found out even just the brief course of the day is just how many of you here are doing such amazing things. And I'm absolutely, whenever I meet people like yourselves, it always gives me huge confidence. And so it's been wonderful and a real privilege to be asked by Susan to come and talk here. It's amazing to have this connection between New Economics Foundation and what was the EF Schumacher Society in creating the new Economics Institute, and I'll say a bit more about that a bit later. But it's wonderful to be here. Now, I'll just tell you a little bit, one thing about myself. I'm a typical Brit. I love a cup of tea. Absolutely murder for a cup of tea. But I cannot abide tea parties.
0: LAUGHTER <laughs>
1: Sorry, (laughs) couldn't resist. (laughs) I'm going to talk about some of the things that Gus and Neva have also talked about, this issue of transition. Why we need to transform the economy. It's not enough just to fiddle. Why we need what we're calling a great transition, but what it would involve and how to make it happen. I'm going to particularly, though, also concentrate on What are some of the underlying beliefs, values that are currently holding the current economic system together and the beliefs and values and principles we need to transform it? Because I do believe very firmly that when something happens, an action, you don't immediately just get the consequence. What determines that consequence is people's belief systems. It's not AC, it's ABC. And it's terribly important, therefore, to work at all those different levels to understand the B in here as well as that. What are the myths? What are the stories that are gripping us at the minute that make it how it is? And what do we need to find and spread much more widely? I'm going to cover five parts to my talk. First, a little bit more on the systemic nature of the problem. You've heard a lot about that, but it's just worth weaving a few things together Then go on to say a bit more about the underlying economic causes, the myths that lie beneath it, because we have to understand where we are to know how we get to somewhere else. I'm going to talk about principles for transition. What might be the design principles of that different economic system? And then I'm going to say, if we use those principles, what will it mean? And you've heard a lot of what it means already, but it's just trying to keep that story together. And then I'm going to talk a bit more about how to make it happen. Can you hear me all okay, by the way? It's okay, because I don't know how close to speak to the microphone. bit louder? A bit closer? Okay. Good. Susan mentioned that situation in Rwanda. I just want to touch on a couple of things to do with that, because not only did it help me see that sometimes the impossible can be made to happen but it also was one of those aha moments one has in life about the nature of the global economy. Let me explain a bit. Oxfam was one of the leaders in providing water and sanitation in emergencies. That's one of the things we specialised in. That was Oxfam Great Britain, uh, though some of the other Oxfams have developed that since. And when the Rwanda genocide happened in April... 1994, and nearly 800,000 people were killed. The random patriotic front army, who were based then in Uganda, invaded from the north, and as a result, there was a huge outflowing of people. Some of those were, most of them were genuine refugees. Some of them were people who'd been involved in the genocide. Some of them were army. So it was a complicated situation. But about 300,000 went across the border first into one, another part of Uganda and we provided the water to them. And then a few weeks later, 500,000 people crossed into Tanzania and we managed just to provide the water for them. But we were, at that point, we'd run out of money as an organisation, we'd run out of water engineers and we'd determined, well, there's not much more we can do. Then this million people that Susan was talking about crossed into what was Zaire, is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And because of the sensitive political nature, they weren't put by a town. They were put between two volcanoes, 35 miles round trip from the nearest water supply. They'd been walking for about five, six days. They were exhausted, and cholera set in in a massive way. Much more virulent than we've seen before, and luckily we've seen, we're not seeing again. But people were dying at the rate of three to five thousand a day. The world's media were there, all the big television channels, the American army was there, the French army was there, the German army was there. And I relaxed, I got out there very quickly, but I relaxed because I felt with such media attention, with all these armies here, with all this government, all the United Nations, somebody else can do it. But the horrible truth started to dawn that nobody else knew how to do it. The armies had the technology to provide very pure water for a battalion of 20,000 people. They didn't have the technologies to provide not not very good water to a million people in between two volcanoes and 35 miles from the nearest river. And we just came to a conclusion, we didn't know how, that we would just have to do it. And I persuaded my director and chair back in England that we should go immediately into about £5 million of debt. We put out a massive appeal. We searched the world for water engineers we used the various armies to fly stuff in. We raised £25 million within two weeks, and we got that water to those million people, and the UN evaluation later said that saved about 50,000 lives. Now, why do I tell you that? I think tell you that really for two really important reasons. One, because it totally hit me how the world system just does not supply something for which there isn't an obvious market. And there wasn't a market for that. Or, and similarly, governments only supply things that they see and might be necessary for their own people. There wasn't a sense anywhere in our economy that we needed to provide those types of public goods um, in that sort of situation. And that dawned on me, and it felt to me, and it stayed with me, that it was going to be more and more important to tackle the fundamental nature of the economic system, not just try and do, as we were, a lot of work both to help relief and do development and to change policies, but we needed something like an economic transformation, and that was why I joined NEF, the New Economics Foundation. But the second major thing it taught me is with enough public backing, with the right cause, with the right people, then the impossible is possible. And that stayed with me. And I think we need to hold that as we face the future now, because it's so important. Let me now go back to my five bits. I said the first was the problem. We've touched on some of these, but it's just worth repeating them we'll mention some of them at the beginning, I see four systemic interlinked problems, and I call them the four U's. Unsustainable, unequal, unstable, and unhappy. Take unsustainable. We've touched on that. We've talked about it a lot. We are running out of planet. No question. As Gus and Neva both said, we face a serious risk of at least a four-degree rise against pre-industrial levels in our climate and with all the extinction of species and problems that go with that. We may be able to stop that, but we're well on track for that. But as they've mentioned, but as isn't always as well known, we're running out of lots of other things as well. The Millennium Ecosystem Assessment of a couple of years ago which looked at the various life-support systems of the planet and the the ecosystem services that flow from those, showed that 15 out of the 25 major ecosystems, the life-support systems the whole planet depends on, are in decline or serious decline. And that runs across fresh water, topsoil, pollination systems, fish, etc. So the problem is much wider than climate change. And people haven't grasped that, and they need to grasp that. And as has also been touched on, the fundamental problem isn't population. It isn't helping it, that growing population. But the fundamental problem is overconsumption. Let's again be really clear what the issues are. And we're moving and changing at a pretty phenomenal rate. There's a measure called global footprint, and it basically it's looking at how much we're living within the planet's resources or not. Back in 1980, the population of the planet was living just about within one planet's worth of resources. It means we were, restore- we were just about living in a sustainable state. Now, that's gone up to 1.3, just in the space of 30 years. If you think how long human beings have been around, in 30 years, we've gone up 30% over. We're overshot already by 30%. And the trends are worse if we carry on as we are. As you probably know, the UK, United Kingdom, my country, if everybody in the world lived at our level, we would need three planets. If everybody lived at the US level, we'd need five planets. We've obviously, only got one. So, everybody aspiring to our lifestyle just isn't possible. And we have to change. And obviously, as Nevo was saying, we're also running out of scarce materials. It's not just ecosystems. Peak oil is well on the way. But we look across a lot of the minerals we face and the discovery rate versus consumption rate is on the wrong direction. And that will either lead to major scarcities or ballooning prices, as Neva's already said. The second major problem, and these are systemic and linked, is the unequal. And here I think people haven't seen, haven't picked up how fast this has changed. The beginning of the 20th century, the data's not terribly certain, but somewhere between 5 to 1 and 7 to 1 was the ratio of the rich the ratio between the richest 20% on the planet and the poorest 20%. In other words, the richest 20% were either 5 or 7 times richer than the poorest 20%. At the end of the 20th century, that had moved to 75 to 1. Dramatic change. Now, some shifts and to some degree on What's been happening in some parts of the world have moved that back a little bit, but it's still massive. It's still a huge change. In other countries, it's getting worse. And there's been a very good bit of work by a book I thoroughly recommend to you called The Spirit Level by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. That book shows very convincingly that... The biggest driver of many of the social ills we face, and that includes crime, includes drug use, includes many things, isn't poverty per se, isn't necessarily even unemployment. Though that is a major factor. It's inequality. The degree of inequality in a country corresponds very, very closely to all sorts of social ills within that country, from the prison population to the um, number of teenage pregnancies that are unwanted, all sorts of things, the drug use. So inequality is a massive, massive problem. And it, it, it's seen in all sorts of places. I saw some statistics, which I haven't been able to verify fully, but it, I think the order of magnitude is right, that the ratio of CEOs of American companies, and I, this is a bit I haven't been able to go back and find my notes on it, In 1980, it was around 42 times the average earnings of people in the company. This was um, the CEO's. According to that bit of data, by 2007, it had risen to 344 times the average earnings income of people in the company. A massive change in a very short time. And this is what you see on a lot of the data. So the idea we still talk about trickle-down is laughable. Let's talk about Hoover Up. That's what's going on. <laughs> the unstable. Gus talked about this. Um, we need, and Will did earlier as well, we do need our economic systems to be both resilient and efficient. That's what ecosystems are. If you, look at, if you learn anything about ecosystems, they have a balance between efficiency and resilience. Economics is terribly bad on resilience. It doesn't have easy ways of measuring that. But it's fundamental. As a result of designing our systems only for efficiency, connecting them all, trying to maximize everything, we've got systems that are neither resilient or efficient because they keep falling over. So the subprime crisis in the U.S. housing market plus a few other bubbles in housing and other things, have spread right throughout the world. There's no firewalls. There's no resilience built into that system. And you can see the same over currency crashes, what's happening to Ireland, to Greece. Right across the world, the frequency of unstable events is increasing. So we haven't designed for resilience. Do you know why San Francisco burnt down? Because originally, and I'm not sure what the technical term is for... This is back in the early 1900s. The technical term for the tanks you fill in the middle of the street, are they hydrants or... Anyway, they... Yeah. Before 1904, they used to fill all the tanks in the city from one place. They were all connected by pipes. So you filled in one place, put the water in, and it all flowed through to the different tanks. And then there was a fire on east whatever street and you just took the water out much more cost effective design earthquake comes along pipes rupture, the water flows out the system fire just spreads through the city that's what happened or one of the factors that happened we've got to design for resilience and efficiency so the last one, that's the unstable the unhappy, that's been touched on as well As Bill McKibben beautifully said, more and better are part of company. More income is not equaling better lives anymore. And as we've also been told you, well-being is flatlining in many of the so-called developed countries. What I think people don't know is that mental health rates and mental health rate problems are increasing quite rapidly in many places. So, in English-speaking advanced countries, it's now reckoned that close to one in four people are suffering some form of mental health problem or illness. That's a pretty phenomenal rate. We're not a happy people. So if you put all that together, we're running faster and faster. We're burning up the planet. We're causing huge instability in all the social problems that happen. We've huge inequality as well and not even make ourselves any happier, if anything, a bit less happy? Isn't that stupid? Very stupid. So that's where we are. And furthermore, just a I'm not wanting to make you too gloomy but just a little bit more gloom. These things are very interconnected. So, because of the, we did some work I suppose about five years ago, looking at if you wanted everybody in the planet to have one more dollar who's living already on one dollar a day, how much does the whole global economy need to go up? And you need to raise the whole by $166 to get one dollar down to a person on one dollar a day. And that is ecologically impossible to keep doing it. And if you want to have everybody in the planet earning $1,000 a year and you keep income distribution as it is and you keep the resource intensity of output as it is at the minute, and you can make assumptions either way, whether they should increase or decrease given recent trends, you need 15 planets worth of resources to get everybody in the world on $1,000 a year. We haven't got 15 planets. So the need for transition is just overwhelming when you start looking at those simple facts that can be almost done on the back of a bit of paper. Gus talked about the risks ahead, whether it's climate disaster, ecological migrants, resource wars, trade wars, prices going through the roof and triggering further depressions. All those are possible if we don't change. And it does feel to me that this business, going back to business as usual, is the worst thing we could possibly think of. Sometimes it feels to me like somebody's jumped out of the 100th Window of a skyscraper, and every floor they pass, this is the, how they, the politicians and economists are thinking. Every floor passes, gosh, things, you know, obviously things are going well. And then there's just the last couple of years, there's been a, a chilly sidewind, which has been danger of pushing you towards the side of the building. And so everybody's been a bit scared of that, but now it's gone away again a bit, and we're carrying on falling. And we've got to change. So the need for transition is so vital. Let's go to the underlying causes of that though, because you know a lot of what I've just been talking about. But just, just look at what's causing it. And I believe that quite a lot of economics as we teach it and practice it now is both intellectually bankrupt and morally bankrupt. And that's quite a statement to make. And I would see that in far more than many other disciplines. A lot of what we base things on are old myths, half truths, and then we've got some new situations that have come along as well. It was Maynard Keynes himself, the famous economist, who said, Practical men who believe themselves quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. And I think that was a very true statement that applies to many politicians and leaders now. Three old myths that have been around a long time, but are very pervasive, yeah, pervasive. Firstly, and very importantly, the one that markets are fair. There is this myth that basically markets provide the right outcomes for the right, for the benefit of the most people. And it's sometimes tied up to this famous expression, the invisible hand. Well, Adam Smith talked about that invisible hand once in The Wealth of Nations when he was talking about a bakery. But if you examine the situation in which he predicated it, it was that there were large numbers of buyers and large numbers of sellers none of whom could influence the price. And furthermore, that those actors were acting in a moral way. Now, neither of those assumptions apply. We see in many markets huge concentrations of power. The world's grain market, there's four or five companies that control 80 to 90% of it. And you can see the same in so many markets. And look at the purchasing side. Do people have equal purchasing? Right? No, they don't. The richest 1% of people in the world earn as much income as the poorest 57%. There's nothing like a level playing field in either side of the equation. So what happens to markets where power balances are unequal? It's fairly simple. If you go into a market with much more power than the other players, you don't end up just with the same power, you end up with even more power. So this idea that things are self-levelling, no, they're not. And so we shouldn't be surprised at that effect of things being hoovered up. And we also need to remember that Adam Smith himself also wrote the theory of moral sentiment. He argued these things only work if actors are moral. And, of course, they're not. Now, let me be clear. I'm very pro-markets And pro-profits, I think they can play a critical role. And pro-companies. But markets, companies, they're social and political entities. They're created by us, they're not some black box, and they need to be managed by us. So the issue isn't being anti-market. The issue certainly isn't going back to a planned market like the Soviet Union type. But the issue is that we start to manage markets for the wider good, and we need to do that. The ecologist Amory Lovins put it very well. He said, markets make a good servant, a poor master, and an even worse religion. We've got markets as religion, and don't let's be surprised that we've got the consequences. The second of my three myths is that prices tell the truth. Well, you've heard about that already. Prices don't tell either the social or the environmental truth. Never touched on it a lot, so did Gus. And it was Oyster Dahl, who used to be a senior executive of ExxonMobil, who actually said, communism collapsed because it didn't allow prices to tell the economic truth. Capitalism will collapse because it doesn't allow prices to tell the ecological truth. And I think there's a lot in that for us to think about. At the minute, prices do not tell the ecological truth at all. They don't tell the social truth either in a whole range of cases. And then the third myth, of course, is the one I've touched on, that more income equals more happiness. It doesn't for many people in the world. It probably does if you're very poor in certain places. That probably still holds true to a degree. It does not in if you are many other parts of the world. What's the new myth? Well, again we've touched on it, but it's this idea that we can carry on growing forever. I was at a conference just a couple of weeks ago with Tim Jackson, and we were up against a person who'd written a book called Ferraris for All. And the bulk of people in that room who weren't just a normal audience truly believed there shouldn't be any limits. It reminded me so much of my two when my daughter was two one of my daughters was two years old. The no syndrome. And there's this amazing ability to suspend all information, to suspend all the, the facts, and say, I want it. And furthermore, it suits me because. Technology will sort it for me. Well, sorry, no, it won't. And it's, I think, part of why people do that is partly staying in that two-year-old state. It's partly self-interest, but it certainly suits many people because if there are limits, then we have to think about sharing things. And that's a tough one for many people, but we do. It was Kenneth Boulding who said if you believe anybody who believes that we can have infinite growth in a finite world is either a madman or an economist. (laughs) What he perhaps should have added was there's quite a few people who fall into both the last categories. (laughs) Some of the present company accepted There's also some philosophical underpinnings that we seem to have lost. So we're running on all these old economic myths. We don't know necessarily they're embedded. There's obviously a huge social modelling, and Gus was talking about Tim Kasser earlier, who I also work with. The modelling, I want more, is huge. So there's huge incentives to consume more stuff. But let's be clear, it also suits a lot of people, or some people, the most powerful people, to keep perpetuating these myths. There is an inbuilt need. So this isn't just us all being a bit stupid. It's actually also design. And we have to know that, because otherwise we don't tackle the problem effectively. But the philosophical underpinnings, most of human history, most of the philosophical underpinnings come down, and I'm Ter- shortcutting terribly what is a huge debate, so forgive me because of time, but either to the utility-type theories, Jeremy Bentham and others, which is about the maximum benefit for the maximum good. That's one thing that's been very prevalent for economics, and and, of, and that sort of is the one that says we don't worry too much about the ones left behind. But then there's also been something that many in this room would identify with much more strongly, including me, the individual rights-based view that we've each got a whole series of rights, which we do. But that trouble with that individual rights-based approach and there's many different variations from Kant to Jeremy Rawl the trouble with that is that doesn't fully apply anymore either, because we might each be acting ethically and according to our rights. But if if the collective outcome is we consume more than our fair share of existing resources at the expense of other people on the planet, or the collective outcome is we consume resources that are not available to the next generations, that's not a moral case. So we haven't even got a moral framework anymore. So our operating systems, philosophically and economically, are broken up, and we've critically got to rebuild them. Because without that, we won't get there. So, I could perhaps just end this bit on the economic myths, on what Bill Clinton should have said. You know, when he said, it's the economy, stupid. What he should have said, it's the economy that's stupid, stupid. But he didn't. (laughs) Okay, let's now dream a bit. Remember, I like dreaming, because dreams are vital, because that's what we turn into reality later. If you don't have that dream, you're not going to get there. So what are those? the principles on which we should design an economic system? And these I just offer as a suggestion, because there's many different variations on this. They're nothing that unique, and many other people have talked about them before. But the Chilean economist Manfred Max-Neef and I, a couple of years ago, worked with a whole group of people from all sorts of different backgrounds to come up with these. So it's just one one set of possibilities. We came up with five principles of what should be the design criteria for a good economy. The first is the economy should be designed to meet human needs and improve quality of life. And that's human needs, not human wants. So it's human needs and quality of life. The second is the economy as a subset of the ecosystem, and therefore the principle is the economy is bounded by ecosystem limits and has to be designed to take them absolutely into account. The third is, is a principle of equity both between the current generation and for future generations. The fourth is designing at appropriate scale and with the appropriate balance between efficiency and resilience. And the fifth is the principle of reverence for all life, and which involves moving from an anthropocentric view of the world to a biocentric view of the world, thinking about other species, factoring in the symbolic, the spiritual, the ascetic, and many of those other factors that make life worthwhile. And those are the five principles this group came up with. and They can sound so obvious, but they are obvious. We'd all come up with different variations of it. But if you start to think about what it means to apply them, it's totally and utterly radical. So let's just have a look. And I won't go... This next bit could go on for a long time, and I haven't got a long time. But what would applying them look like? I'll just cover some things. They're designed to meet human needs and improve quality of life. That does require as Gus has said earlier, measuring things differently. It says human well-being and the quality of our life is the key goal. And we need to be striving for that. We need to measure things very differently. And it was Robert Kennedy who said about GDP, for example, he gave a brilliant quote, but he said, it measures everything except those things that make life worthwhile. And we need something that measures what makes life worthwhile. We can argue about what it is. We came up with something that I'm told doesn't play well in the U.S. um, called a Happy Planet Index um, about four or five years ago, which measured how long people live, their well-being, so happy and long lives and looked at the ecological efficiency of different countries in creating those happy and long lives. And we normally reckon if we get a 45-page PDF downloaded 30,000 times, that's brilliant. This one has been downloaded a million times, over a million times now, in 180 countries. Different governments are talking about it. It's gone viral. And we've done that index again just recently, and who comes out at the top? Costa Rica. country Will knows well, and probably some others in this audience know well. Average life expectancy in Costa Rica is 78.5, higher than the U.S. Well-being, people's well-being, is higher than the U.S. 99% of their electricity is generated from renewable sources. They've got a healthcare and education system. It's brilliant. They abolished the army in 1949. And they, create, they got some of the highest literacy rates anywhere in the world. And they do all that on a quarter of the average ecological resources, the average global footprint, of most Western countries. And an even smaller amount, something like a fifth or a sixth of what the U.S. uses. So they're creating genuinely happy and long lives their citizens at much less the cost of the planet. And I think it's worth just looking at that because we tend to think the future is either American or European or Chinese. Maybe, as Nick Marks, who's our head of well-being um, said when he did his TED Talk recently, which is a brilliant TED Talk and I submitted all to you, maybe the future is Latin American. Maybe they know some things that we don't and we ought to learn from it. But that concept of well-being is much more than happiness. It's about not just about how happy people feel, it's about how they're developing as human beings, the development of their competencies, their pro-social behavior. The things that make the most difference to people's well-being are the quality of their relationships and how valued and valuable they feel in their society. So people who take part in team activities and the arts tend to have much higher levels of well-being. People who are unemployed have that really dense people's well-being. If a society is unequal, people's well-being collectively, including the people who are best off, is affected. If the, con- the ecology is being destroyed, the environment's being destroyed, that also dents people's well-being. So we actually know a lot about what pe- makes people flourish and give them self-confidence. And we did a, we got something in the UK called five-a-day fruit and vegetables. If you want to be healthy, you have to have five portions of fruit and veg. That's been a big advertising campaign. Well, we did some work with the British government to look at five-a-day for well-being. And what were they? They'll connect, in other words, about relationships. Be active, take notice, start... Taking that time to look around, to notice, to be there. Keep learning, and that most, the last one, is that most uneconomic of activities give. Give just doesn't fit, just as Gus was talking about love earlier, economics at all. It's the most irrational thing to do, to give freely, yet it's what makes us most human. So we have to start measuring. Really matters. And if we start doing that, that pushes us on very different paths. What about bounded by ecosystem limits? Well, here there's a big dilemma. As you'd have gathered by now, carrying on as we are is just totally impossible, consuming as much planet. But just stopping consuming stuff is going to throw us into a big recession throw people out of work, that's not going to increase well-being. So the work that Gus was talking about, Peter Victor, who's a fellow board member with NEVA, Gus and I, on the New Economics Institute, the work that he's done on Canada is very interesting because the first model he did was business as usual, and as Gus said, you you cause massive carbon emissions, you cause growing unemployment, And you don't solve even the debt problem. The second one was stopping growing immediately and stopping consuming immediately. You just put lots of people out of work. You solve the carbon problem, but you don't solve the well being and social justice problem. You cause bigger problems in society. So there is, but the good news is there is a path through. And that does require, as we've already hinted at, it requires the right degrees of investment in the right areas of the economy. It requires sharing work differently. It does require, as Neva said, in some cases, taking a trade-off between income and time. There isn't the perfect solution where you can have more of anything, but there is a solution where you can have a better life. You can do so in a fairer society. You can create enough jobs for everybody and you can do so within planetary limits and fair share of Canada. That sounds pretty good to me. I'll go for that. It requires us to think very differently about productivity. We've tended, we've got a system at the minute that has to grow because all the time we're trying to get increased returns on capital, which means shedding labour costs, and unless we grow, we don't create enough employment for people. If actually the scarce resource isn't capital, the scarce resource is natural resources, is ecological, limit, ecological capital, not financial capital, that, and if our well-being comes from creating good and fulfilling jobs, then what the system has to be designed fundamentally to do is not to create greater returns to capital. It has to satisfy capital returns, but the system has to create jobs for enough people per scarce unit of ecological resource. That becomes what you're trying to maximise. You're trying to maximise employment and the right types of employment per scarce unit of natural resource. And that is a radically different economic system. It can work within the market system, but it requires a transformation of our thinking, And it clearly requires an industrial and financial strategy. Again, as Gus was talking about it and Neva's been talking about, it requires you as a government to be strategic. And you see, I just don't understand this. Somebody explain it to me. If I'm running the Economics Foundation, I'm expected to have a strategy. If you're running a charity, you're expected to have a strategy if you're running a local government, if you're running an arts organisation, is it running a government? No. You don't need to know where you're going and what you're trying to do. That's pretty bonkers. Actually, you do need to have a strategy, and some, only a few governments have been good at it. South Korea, when I worked for the World Bank, did a massive land reform. It hugely invested in education. It decided which sectors it wanted to develop. It... It targeted financial resources, it targeted incentives, tax relief, it created institutions, it decided what it wanted to do. It did it very successfully, and it's been an economy that's transformed. Admittedly, its civil and political rights weren't anything to write home about, but um, that's a different problem. But we could. We need a strategic state. We don't need a nanny state that does everything. We don't need a small state. We need a strategic state that knows what it wants to do, that sets up the incentives. We need an industrial policy that doesn't pick winners or losers, but picks which sectors one wants to develop. And you need a monetary policy that's far cleverer. There isn't time to go into the whole issue of monetary creation. But there is only one free lunch in the world, and that's the one bankers have with money creation. Because they can create money out of nothing. And unless you have a 100% reserve requirement, which I would argue you need to do for those sectors that aren't productive, so you can only lend out to the non-productive sectors the money that people have lent in, but for the sectors you're trying to develop, then probably you can allow credit creation. That's arguable. But you also need complementary currencies, all sorts of other things. That's a big discussion, which I haven't got time to go into. But You need to have your monetary instruments, your fiscal instruments, not designed for the economy as a whole, but designed for the sectors you want to develop and not for the sectors you don't. It needs intelligent design. And that's part of the way through. The equity principle, at the base, we need social and economic rights for everybody. All the nations signed up in 1947 or 48, whatever it was, to the UN Declaration for Human Rights. We've forgotten that we signed up to social and economic rights for every single person on this planet, as well as civil and political rights. We need to remember that. Every single human being on this planet deserves those basic social and economic rights. That's the underpinning. That deals, to some extent, and that requires, if you did it properly, it requires... Where a government can't do it, the international system helping provide those rights. Big discussion there on development. But it doesn't answer the question of too much and how you deal with equity in an advanced country. And clearly we need, as we've seen, to get distribution much better. How much better? Some would argue you only have a difference in income based on talent and effort and that should be the only divider. That's, even that's difficult, because what determines people's ability to put effort in, or even their talent? So not an easy area, but it's an area where we've got to stop pretending there isn't a problem about inequality and start having a debate, an honest debate, about what levels of equality we want and how to get there. Because we don't. We won't solve those social problems. And we need to look creatively at the mechanisms to do so, because you don't need to just look at income distribution. You need to look at assets, you need to look at time, you need to look at carbon. And some of those give much more palatable ways of doing a distribution than income alone. And there's some clever ways one could do that. And when you think at the global level, if there's a global commons of the atmosphere, then the only principle you could work on that is everybody has got a fair share of the limited carrying capacity of the atmosphere. And then you just say, well, those using more than their fair share should pay a rental to those not using their fair share, which are some of the poorest on the planet. That would be a massive redistribution of resources if we put that principle into place. So simple to say these things, so difficult to do it. I need to speed up the last two principles, the scale and resilience efficiency. Appropriate scale is what matters. We do not want to do everything at the local. Some things are better done at the national or the global even. When we're dealing with carbon, we need to talk globally. But we need appropriate scale. Some things are much better done at the local. And we need a revival of the sort of things many people in this room are doing. Thriving local economies where we've got much more local food, much more local energy production, local businesses, the work that... New Economics Institute is doing in Vermont and other places is all part of that and many others in this room. Just a small thing, which I'm sure applies in your country as well as in mine, but it's been calculated that at the minute less than 1% of people in the UK are involved in food production. It's probably even lower than that in the US. It could very easily be 20% and we could grow a lot more food locally. It doesn't mean that 20% would be fully time-involved, but that would be 20% of the population involved at least to some degree in growing food. Very possible. So we need to think about that. And what's resilience mean here? It means diversity. It means diversity of form. It means diversity of shapes of organization, having mutuals, um, all sorts of different types, as well as bigger companies. And then the reverence principle, huge amounts I could say, but the one thing that Neva's already touched on is the concept of stewardship. If we're seriously moving to a biocentric view and thinking about future generations, then we're stewards. This idea of ownership has really got to be hit, and I agree totally that we should be looking at being stewards of land, stewards of minerals, stewards of oil, stewards of sea, stewards of the commons, We might still own our house, our clothes, and various other things, but we've got to have a really good dialogue about what we can own and what we're stewards of. And we're not having it yet, but we need to have it. So, let's get to the final point, the how. I really believe the how is possible, but it requires us to do something, and this is really the key purpose of the New Economics Institute, to pull together the brilliant Ideas work that many people are doing in this country and beyond to aggregate those ideas and to amplify them, to put them across, to tell the story in a compelling, exciting way that makes people say, Yeah, I want to change and change I've got because it has to be positive. and we need to accompany that with campaigning, with good research with lobbying, not just, when I say we, I mean us collectively. There's a tremendous base to grow on, the work of TELUS, Transition Town Movement, NEF, the work of many of you, all the partnerships. But what we've got to do is bring this together and tell a compelling tale. And tell it in new language. The people who came up with free markets were brilliant. It's so simple and so misleading. We want something that's simple and not misleading, and we can do it. We, in the Economics Foundation and with NEI, are working on this model for the UK economy and then the US economy, which will show how we can make that transition. We're going to set up a commission like the Stern Commission, but which will look at this question of moving to a low material um, economy. And we're going to campaign because that campaigning is so vital. The campaigning goes growth going to be acupuncture campaigning, and we do fun things, as Susan said. So one of the things we did to show that growth isn't possible is came up with the impossible hamster. Now, you may or may not know, this is a bit of useless information, that a hamster doubles its birth weight every week from birth to puberty. It grows pretty fast, doesn't it? Luckily, it stops at puberty. If it didn't stop at puberty... At one year old, it would weigh 9 billion tons (laughs) and every day would be consuming the entire grain supply of the world. That's the one hamster. That's just a little lesson in what infinite growth is like and why it's impossible in a finite world. Just puts it across a bit more fun. We're campaigning both in what we call acupuncture campaigning, which is trying to find those... Places where, and this is the financial system we're looking at at the minute, where acupuncture interventions could shift the system. But fundamentally, we don't think transition is going to happen without a movement for change. And what we want to do, and what we're trying to work with partners, initially in the UK but then worldwide, to do, is bring about a movement for change in all sorts of different sectors – So just as the transition town movement has done wonders as a social movement about places in transition, we want to take that out to society in transition, bringing all the different environmental and development and other groups together. We want to take it to business in transition. There's lots of people there in businesses who want to come together and can be pushing for something very different. To faith in transition arts in transition, education and universities in transition, creating groups in universities. That's the sort of thing we've got to do. We've got to get a movement for change because businesses won't change and can't without either people buying differently or without governments changing the rules of the game. And governments won't change the rules of the game without people demanding they do. So Without serious people pressure, we can write all the reports in the world. I can do all the brilliant research, which we sometimes do, I think. We can do all the good lobbying, but it won't bring change. It requires that concentration of change. Now, Susan mentioned the Jubilee Debt Campaign. That campaign didn't achieve as much as it wanted, but it did achieve over $100 of debt forgiveness to the poorest countries. It did result... In 500,000 children every year being in school in Uganda, and you can give you many other cases. That campaign, when we started it, we went to the UK Treasury, and one senior official left, told us as we left the door, having told us we were going to invoke moral hazard and the world financial system would collapse. ha if we, if countries forgave, so if if sovereign debt was forgiven, he said, go away and play with your toys. And that was the best thing he ever said. It was so rude, it got everybody totally angry. And we went away and played with our toys. We and many other people. We got the faith groups involved. 40 million people worldwide signed that Jubilee deck. 100,000 surrounded the G8 meeting, as it was then in Birmingham. And the world leaders didn't like that. All sorts of research went into it that demonstrated how many more kids were going to school. But in the end, it was good research combined with good lobbying combined with people power. And enough voices were heard. We've got to do the same thing. We've got to take that over and tell that tale. And that's the task for us ahead. It's necessary, it's desirable, and it's possible. We know we can do it technically. We can have greater well-being, more employment, happier lives, and do so within ecological limits. The issue is persuading enough people to put pressure on to make it happen. It will happen anyway, but I don't want it to happen via those disasters. I want us to make it happen. And we've got to make it happen. We are at that Galileo-Copernicus moment where people are ignoring the evidence that's in front of their eyes. They're still saying the sun is going around the earth. We know differently. We need a lot more people to know differently and we need people to shout it. So as Susan said earlier, I leave you with those two questions that came from Hillel, the philosopher. It was used by Robert Kennedy. It was also used by Ronald Reagan to... Justify all sorts of budget cuts. Let's take it back. If not us, who? If not now, when? Thank you.
0: And in any case, it's certainly worth a hell of a try because it's all positive development anyway. To hear more talks like this one and discover more than 30 years of Schumacher Lectures, visit centerforneweconomics.org. The Schumacher Center for New Economics Research Library houses the collections of E.F. Schumacher, Robert Swan, and other influential thinkers in the New Economy Movement. You can strengthen our mission by purchasing a copy of your favorite Schumacher Lectures at centerforneweconomics.org order pamphlets. Our work is supported by listeners like you. You can donate to our cause at centerforneweconomics.org/donate. This library and the Schumacher lectures capture powerful voices for economic reform. Voices with the strength to move and inspire. They frame and inform action, but are not themselves the action. At a time when our earth is in crisis and our communities face complex challenges, we are all charged with creating solutions. The Schumacher Center's applied work seeks to implement the principles described by these speakers within the context of the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. This work includes crafting innovative leases that share equity and improvements while holding land and community trust building berkshares, a local currency designed to democratize monetary issue and keep money circulating in the region and engaging citizens in supporting the development of regionally appropriate businesses, creating local jobs while retaining local ownership and control. You can support our work in a new economy by making a donation at centerforneweconomics.org/donate or call us at 413-528-1737. To make an appointment to visit our research library and office at 140 Jugend Road, Great Barrington, Massachusetts.